Well, good morning. It's so good to see everybody here this morning. Today, we're going to wrap up our study of the book of 1 Peter. And then the last five Sundays in the year, we'll work through five Advent messages. So I hope that you'll uh, follow along with that. There will be Kevin will let you know at the end of the service about some resources that will be available. Then in the new year, we'll pick up with 2 Peter and finish that book as well. So uh, last week, Peter challenged us to no longer live for human passions, but to live for the will of God. I got a text this week, someone saying that quote, saying that, giving me the idea that they were doing that, making that a reminder for the morning, and so that was awesome. But what did Peter also warn us? He says, if you do that, if you say, I'm going to live for the will of God, I'm going to stand for the will of God, what's going to happen? What should you expect to happen? Yeah. And I think that's a little different expectation than what we really tend to think, if we're honest. Like, if, I think we tend to think, well, if I live for the will of God, things are about to go really good in my life. Things are about to go well because I'm doing God a favor. I'm scratching his back, he's going to scratch my back. And that is absolutely not what the Bible says. The Bible says, expect to suffer if you stand for Christ, if you live for Christ. If you start making adjustments in your life, to align it with the will of God, expect to suffer. Now, as we think about that, what kind of suffering do we face in America today for standing for Christ? It's certainly, thankfully, praise the Lord, it's not physical persecution. It's not endangerment of our life. As I thought about it, I thought students, I, I know certainly you suffer if you stand for Christ. If you make a decision to live for Christ, your life is going to look different. And you're going to be set apart, and you're going to be alienated, you're going to be insulted, which is exactly what's mentioned in 1 Peter. You're going to be maligned. People are not going to be encouraging of that decision in your life. And that's very difficult, very hard. As I thought about adults, what does adult suffering look like? You know, and the I think the reality is it's not so much as hard for us to feel like someone's going to think less of us or exclude us. But I think most of us would point to the suffering that we face is more related to the political, cultural, social environment that we live in each day that we feel is increasingly hostile to and against the biblical Christian worldview. As we look at the culture, we feel like it's a form of persecution or some of the suffering that we're experiencing. I think if we were to ask or listen in to what is being discussed in community groups, you would hear things like, well, they don't even allow prayer in school anymore. They're trying to teach our kids evolution and revisionist history of things, and, and they're forcing a whole liberal, secular agenda onto our kids and into our lives. And we think about the political environment or our government laws about abortion or same-sex marriage or immigration or cultural, or I should say uh, climate change and things like that. I think that's what our mind goes to as Christians today, that that's what our form of suffering is. We feel that the view 
pushed by the vast majority of the mass media is is a worldview that is completely different than our biblical worldview and they we feel more and more that they portray evangelical Christian evangelicals as extremists and we we see it on TV we see it in the shows that we watch and and we feel like this whole movement of the culture is is right in our face and against us and then we get on our social media and there's just all this yelling and screaming and hatred and politics discussing all these matters and who's right and how to be handled and and it just feels like as a christian when we try to stand on the word of god that is how we would define suffering today are y'all with me y'all agree that that's the that's the bulk of it that's mainly how we would say we feel we're suffering the question is then how are we to respond to suffering as christians whether it be students or whether it be, as I describe, for adults or whatever your personal experience is of how you feel you're suffering because of your stand for Christ. How are we to respond to suffering? Peter's going to answer that question, and I believe it is a particularly relevant instruction for us this morning. Lord, I ask for your help this morning. I pray that we as your church as your children will heed Peter's instructions this morning and that we will respond according to these instructions to the suffering we face in our culture today. We need your help and I ask for your help in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. All right, let's begin in 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's look at verses 12 through 16. And Peter tells us, in light of all that cultural chaos and opposition and suffering that we are facing, how do we respond? Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised by this. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Y'all, we got this. We don't even need to talk about this, right? We're all rejoicing each day. Just close the Bible and let's go home. We already mastered this. Now, this is radically different than what I think we're doing. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now to be clear, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed Let him glorify God in that name. Let's let's work through those verses real quick. How does Peter tell us that we should respond when we are suffering because of our stance for Christ? First of all, he says, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised. Now, I think that is the word of the century for us. 
if I can be honest for a minute, I feel like the Christian church is on the verge of an all-out panic attack. Like, ah! I want you to say, I want you to feel that's what I'm hearing from the Christian church. Oh my gosh, what are my grandkids going to face? Are we honest? That's what we're feeling. What kind of world are my grandkids going to grow up in? What kind of world are my kids going to grow up in? What do we do? Look who's in the White House. Look who's in Congress. Look who's in the Senate. Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised. Surprise feeds a sense of panic. When we're caught off guard, it's immediately it's like, oh, what are we going to do? And Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised. Don't be panicked. Jesus told us, expect persecution. He says, to put it in a terrible paraphrase, they hung me on a cross. What do you think they're going to do to you? That's what he said. He said, they, they persecuted me if you follow me. What do you think they're going to do to you? How did Jesus act as he went to the cross? Laura, what are we doing? No, he said, this is the will of God. This is why I came. This is God's plan. I'm not caught off guard by this. I'm not really excited about the pain that I'm about to go through, but not my will, but yours, Lord. And so we need to just take a deep breath and heed Peter's instructions this morning. Don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you to test you. That's what he says, fiery trials to test you. Now, what fiery trials is he talking about? Just to be clear, back in verse 4 last week, he said, don't be surprised when they malign you for your stance, for, for saying, I'm going to live for the will of God. And today in verse 14, he says, don't be surprised if you are insulted for the name of Christ. To be clear, these fiery trials are trials that God allows you to go through because of your stand for Christ not the mess of consequences that you bring on yourself because of sin or because of your mouth in response to what's going on in the world. He says in verse 15 and 16, I'm not talking about the suffering that you bring upon yourself because of your sinful behavior. I'm just talking about the fact that when you stand for Christ in an ungodly culture, you're going to suffer, and don't be surprised by it. In fact, understand something about it. He is doing this to test you. Now, what in the world does he mean by test you? It's not the testing like a college exam where you study and you hope you pass the test. This is a testing that's more of a testing and proving the strength. It's a refining of. It's like taking a metal, 
a gold and placing it in the fire to test it, to prove it, to refine it, to burn off the impurities so that after the testing process, the refining process, there is a more precious, stronger, more beautiful, precious metal. He says this is what this fiery trials that you are in as the people of God who've chosen to stand on the word of God, who've chosen to live out the word of God, to believe it and to obey it, you are going to suffer. Don't be surprised by it. In fact, know that it is part of God's refining fire in the church. So don't be surprised. In fact, understand the value of it. This is how we should respond to the suffering. And that's the only way we can start to make sense of his next instructions in verse 13. He says, but in fact, don't be surprised, but instead do what? Rejoice? Woohoo! Yay, I'm glad they're doing this to me. Is that what he means? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying just have some fake happy emotion that just, yo, boy, I'm sure I'm happy about this. No. Rejoice is the verb, the act of taking joy. Now understand what joy is. A biblical definition of joy is not some fleeting emotion. It is, affects the emotions, but it's more akin to the way we think of confidence. It's the song we just sang. In the midst of trials and fiery tribulations... And the chaos of our culture or friends turning their backs on us because we're standing for Christ. In the midst of that, can we say, it is well with my soul. That's the joy. Take joy. A biblical definition of joy is this. It's a confident, steadfast assurance based on the good Sovereignty of God. Let me say that again. A biblical definition of joy is a confident, steadfast assurance based on the good sovereignty of God. It's knowing God is faithful, God is good, God is in charge, God has a plan. I know what God's doing, I know that He is able, I know that He is faithful. In fact, this passage of Scripture is laced with at least four references to the end times. That when God reveals His ultimate glory, when God comes again in judgment, when God does this, we have to take a step back and view our suffering in light of the bigger plan that the Bible reveals. That God in His grace is redeeming and restoring a people and a planet to Himself. He is carrying out a beautiful, glorious plan. So rejoice. Take confident assurance. Be encouraged. Take courage in this plan that God is carrying out in your life. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. You see how the mindset is shifted that you see you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Take joy, then he says in verse 13, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you see how he's bringing that future eschatological event of the return of Christ, the end of this long process that he's carrying out. He says, there is a day when the glory of God, the fullness of his plan, the beauty of his wisdom, all of his glory is revealed and everyone stands with jaws open. They hit their knees and they magnify the glory of God Almighty. On that day, you will rejoice all the more if you see the joy now in participating in his sufferings. See, if you can find joy now and participating in sufferings, it's an indication that you are going to rejoice ultimately at the day of his return. It's evidence, suffering for Christ is evidence that you are one of his children. It's evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is living and proving your genuineness of your faith, the genuineness of your claim to be a follower of Christ. You stood for Christ in the midst of suffering. You shared in Christ's suffering as if you were walking with him the day that he was hung on a cross and you said, take me if you're going to take him because I'm with him. And so when you suffer today for the stand and the cause of Christ, it should have some sort of encouraging effect on you as, hey, I'm with Christ one day. It's going to be a glorious day of rejoicing. So let that help you find joy in the midst of suffering today. He talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this in verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What do you mean? You're blessed because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. The Spirit of God working in you. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ indwelling you, and he testifies to you in the midst of that suffering, you are my child, blessed, you are blessed by the glory of God. God has his hands on you. Don't turn back, be strong and courageous. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 16 and 17. He says the spirit of God helps us in our sufferings. He says in verse eight, chapter 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we're then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You see the connection? That if you're truly going to inherit all the glories of God through Jesus Christ, you will share in his sufferings now. Don't be surprised by that. In fact, expect it. In fact, you're blessed if this happens. In fact, let the Spirit of God produce within you a steadfast assurance. This means I'm a child of God and I've got a glorious inheritance coming. So when we take stand for Christ, it's like the Spirit of God picks us up like a loving father would if their child was scared, being persecuted, going through a scary situation. The father would just reach up, grab their child, put them in their arms and said, I got you. You're fine. I got you. We're going to get through this. That's what the Spirit of God does to his church, to his people. Giving steadfast assurance, giving confidence, 
giving security in the midst of insecurity. Peace instead of panic. Humility, trust instead of arrogance and lashing back out. This brings glory to God. That's what he says in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When we are able to stay calm, steadfast, confident in the Lord, not lashing out anger, not in panic, not freaking out, not wondering what's going to happen, we know what's going to happen. When we're able to respond that way, and love our enemies, and be gracious to those who persecute you, and not lash out like pagans, then we're bringing great honor to the Lord's name. And that's the plan. That's the design of God. That is the will of God that we stood together last week and said, I will not live for human passions. I will live for the glory, for the will of God. Well, that's his will, that you and I suffer for doing good. That you and I suffer for doing his will. Because in those darkest moments, that's when his light shines the brightest. So this spirit-produced, steadfast, confident assurance that's based in the good, sovereign will of God brings glory to God in the midst of suffering. Peter continues in verse 17 and 18 to give us perspective on suffering and how it's part of his will and his plan. And it brings this, refinering, this refiner's fire back into the picture in verse 17. For he says, For it is time present time. It is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. That is so interesting. Rejoice in the suffering because it is time for, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, Think about the future. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? What will become of the sinner? So Peter is saying we can have a confident joy now in the midst of suffering for the name of Christ because it's a part of God's good plan and he is like a refiner's fire. This suffering is like the judgment of God, a flame that is coming. And it begins at the house of God. It begins with God's people. And the same flame that blows through the church is the same flame that will destroy God's enemies. But you know what the flame does to God's true people? makes them glorious. It refines them. It removes the dross. It, it, it removes the impurities. What happens to the church when things get really tough, when it's no longer good for business to join a church, when it's no longer good for your reputation to say, I'm a Christian, like 98% of people do in Shreveport, when it's no longer the cool, acceptable thing to do, but if you know to get baptized 
and people see it and they're going to write your name and you're going to be blackballed in the community and they're not going to do business with you. What happens in the church? Woo, son, it gets pure. The only people willing to do that are the people who really had the Spirit of God change their heart. And that is a glorious church. He says that's what's happening. He's pulling all this from Ezekiel 9, Malachi 3. In Israel's day, Israel was just getting the cultural sin was in coming into the people of God. And, and God came to Ezekiel and said in a vision of fire, he said, listen, the judgment of God is coming. It's going to begin with the house of God. And when it was done, all that was left was this pure little remnant of the faithful. And in Malachi 3, he speaks of the same day. In 3 verse 2, it says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. This is what's happening today as you stand for Christ. If you feel the suffering of a standing for Christ He's refining his church. He will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former days. The Lord is making sure that the offering that we bring to the Lord is pure. He's putting us through the precious, through the fire, like a precious bar of gold that when it goes through the fire, it comes out glorious. My friend who was uh, studied for his PhD in Aberdeen, Scotland, was telling me about this years ago, and he said, When I was there, it was so interesting. All the churches have been turned into pubs. He said, it was, it was interesting to see the culture is not a Christian culture. It's a post-Christian culture. It's more and more where we're going, most likely. But he said, but you know the really cool thing about it is? There's no gray. There's no cultural Christians. He says, you are either in or out, for or against. There's no confusion. You know who is really a believer. There is a clarity that comes when the, pure, the church gets pure and the culture gets darker. That's what the Lord's doing. But at the same time, this flame is a scary warning of judgment for all of us here today. John Piper likes to say Jesus is the asbestos suit that we need to survive the flames. The only way to escape the hot, holy wrath of God is to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is no condemnation. Those who reject Christ... There is nothing but a fearful expectation of the wrath of God. If the righteous are scarcely saved, those who are in Christ, what will become of the, quote, ungodly and the sinner 
What will the outcome be of the, quote, those who do not obey the gospel of God? Those who do not repent and trust in Christ. Do not wait another moment to repent and throw yourselves on the mercies of Jesus. Peter brings this to a head in verse 19 with a clear call. Here's what we need to do. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's the call. Entrust your souls to Jesus. He's the faithful creator. The term he uses there brings this idea of the sovereign creator who is carrying out his plan. And he is the all-powerful creator. And he has a great plan. He's going to bring about his days. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Stay calm. Entrust yourself to the Lord. Respond with spirit-produced grace. Now, what is the prerequisite to be able to do this? What do you got to do? What do you got to have to entrust yourselves, entrust your souls to God? The prerequisite, humility. You got to have humility. You've got to say, okay, I'm not God. I've got to entrust myself to God. And that's where he goes. Humility is how he finishes out his book. We looked at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 already, or 1 through 4, as we ordained elders. And we looked at how the elders should live out this humility in the context of the church. This is how Peter ends his book. Take this to the context of the community group, of the church. Believers now, he says to them in verse 5 of chapter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. What does he say to do? I want everyone to say those two words with me out loud. Clothe yourselves. That's an action. You have to take a step to clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility. He doesn't say, raise up in all of your pride and courage. He says, The Christian response is to clothe yourself in humility. Biblical humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. yourself. Biblical humility is thinking properly of yourself in light of who God is and what he's doing. Find yourself in God's plan. Make sense of the world and yourself in light of who God is and what he said he is doing. Clothe yourself in in a proper understanding of who you are and what God is doing, humility toward one another. This is important that we catch this transition that just happened in the text. He's in the context of the church now. For God opposes the proud in the church and outside, but carefully listen. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility in the church. Humble yourselves in the church under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time when he comes back, he may exalt you. Church, cast your anxieties on him. Stop freaking out. Stop thinking you've got to handle this on your own. Humble yourselves. Cast your anxieties on the Lord whom you worship, whom you bow to. Because he cares for you. 
He loves you. He's good. He's faithful. He's got a plan. Now listen to this text, this verse. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. To devour. Where'd your mind go? It went out there, didn't it? The lion is out there. No, he's in the context of the church saying, the pride, prideful arrogance of the church member The devil is just waiting for an opportunity to use your pride and your arrogance to rip the church wide open. When you come into this church and your community groups during the week and you're stressed out and you're anxious because you've been watching the talking heads on television and you've been looking at social media and the, the venom and the anger and all this anxiety is just bottled up in you and you finally get to a safe place where you think you can tell everybody what you think and how to fix it. If everybody just voted for this guy and half the room in your church and your community just went, I don't, I don't agree with that. <gasps> what? You mean we don't all vote for the same people? We all can agree this is sin. Same-sex marriage is not God's will. Abortion is not God's will. All these issues that we all agree on, but we all have a variety of solutions to those issues and we don't agree. So don't come into the church and pridefully and arrogantly announce that you are God and you have solved the problem. And you split your group open. Humbly respond to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Humbly entrust your anxieties to the Lord when you get together in community group. That's the complete opposite of arrogantly announcing how everyone in the church should should stand. Resist that response. And after you and I, after we have suffered a little while, praise God for the reminder that the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. And to him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Father God, I pray that you will clothe us in your humility. That you will comfort us by the Spirit's testifying, Spirit's grace testifying in our hearts that we are children of God, and if children of God, we will suffer, share in the sufferings of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this reminder that we should all entrust ourselves to the faithful creator, the faithful creator who created us, who is redeeming a people unto himself, who is restoring this fallen world to himself, And he is absolutely faithful. 
that he will not fail. And may we be encouraged, may we be able to rejoice in the fact that we are considered worthy to suffer, to share in the sufferings of Christ. And may we never lose hope that he will never fail.